Welcome to Nothing to Hide, the Moore and Giles podcast. I'm your host, Daryl Calfee. Moore and Giles is one of America's oldest leather companies. We were founded during the heart of the Great Depression, right here in Lynchburg, Virginia, in 1933. And almost 100 years later, our leadership is still in pursuit of one thing, the world's finest leather. Perhaps we even touched your life. Maybe it was in a hotel lobby or your home. Or perhaps this morning when you went to get a cup of coffee, you found your favorite leather chair in the corner and you settled in. Well, that leather is probably more Giles too. Our goal was simply just to share some stories within this podcast, to take you on a journey, to let you experience what we experience. We'll teach you how leather's made and give you insight into some of the subtle nuances of the material. Did you know it's one of man's oldest materials? We're also going to take you to meet some of our favorite people in the world designers and creative influencers and people that are connected to more giles through one thing leather we hope you join us on the more giles podcast nothing to hide on this episode of the more giles podcast i get to sit down with bill amberg for those of you who don't know bill's studio for the last 30 years has been creating some of the most beautiful and iconic leather architectural pieces in the world we're talking about seating and railings and curtains Things that are made of leather that are just stunning and beautiful and located in some of the most historic places on earth. In addition to that, his iconic rocket bag sits in two museums. Bill is gentle and kind. He's also super creative and an effective leader. I hope you guys get to enjoy this podcast. Now keep in mind, we're actually in the middle of a global pandemic, so Bill and I are talking at a great distance. He's in the UK, and I'm here at our headquarters in Virginia. I hope you enjoy this episode, and be well. Hey, Bill. Good morning. Hey, Daryl. How are you? How's it going over there? Well, I think like you, our world is very different than it was a few weeks ago. What's going on in the UK today? The, the, the news changes every single day. Um, the government, I have to say, has been pretty amazing. Work is unprecedented, I would say. We're trying to establish some kind of new rhythm, uh, be able to place work with people. Mm. Yeah, we just don't know. It's It's a strange time but i think there are a few blessings in a strange way um uh, the weather has been amazing we've had terrible weather all winter and then this last two three weeks have been really beautiful and that's made a big difference also get into the garden and do stuff like that it always helps do you garden a lot yeah i've got a lovely garden and um lots lots to do lots to do lots of coming up and rose beds to feed and pruning and all sorts of things going on. You are a man of many talents, Bill. (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) Well, um, I think for some people um, on our side of the pond, uh, one of the first questions we've heard from designers is, who's Bill Amberg? And then they Google Bill Amberg and it's like, oh, wow, Bill Amberg is what I would call like the epitome of craft. And so when we've described your work to people, we say, if you love someone who is the best at what they do, someone who has attention to detail, someone who is really into creating things that are unique and creative, um, you're going to love Bill Amberg's work. And the feedback that we've heard has been overwhelming the same of like, wow, I think the word wow has come back so often. So if you would, would you kind of tell us a little bit about the Bill Amberg story? I know it's your own, but it's a little autobiographical. But would you mind kind of walking us through um, how the Bill Amberg studio came to be? It's a, it's a kind of funny story, I think, built around the town I grew up in, which was Northampton, which is a, um, a shoe town. So it's a leather town, really. Um, 
and also I had great uh, inspiration from my parents. They really encouraged me to get out there and and, and design and make. Mm. And that process of designing and making, I think, has sort of stead me. I think curiosity in all things is great, and it opens your eyes. You know, people say to me, how do you get your inspiration? Well, it, it seems to me like inspiration is absolutely everywhere. You only have to lift your head up and take a look, and there's, there's something out there that's inspiring. There's from people to places to things. Anyway, I, I kind of encouraged, I was encouraged by my parents to design and make things. I started to get involved in leather. It became a material that I be, became more and more fascinated with. Um, well, as you know, at Moore and Giles, it's a, it's a very rewarding material. It's a very sympathetic material to work with. It, it inspires you. Um, and there's also enormous variety in it. The more you find out about it, the more you realize how little you know and how much there is to know. Um, and that part of that process led me to travel. And uh, I, I as really quite a young, young man, and I was before I was in, I was 19, and I left the UK and went to uh, New Zealand and Australia and Southeast Asia. And on those travels, I um, continued my exploration of the material. At some stage, I, I met up with... Um, uh, an amazing woman actually called Gay Wilson. Now she had a, a leather studio in um, Adelaide in Australia. And um, I was very lucky to be introduced to her. I, I did an apprenticeship with her and she was a great teacher. She was extremely strict on the techniques of leather working by hand, the craft of it all. So lots of hand stitching um, and really understanding the material. But she was also incredibly free with it. She kind of felt that once you got to know your material, you need to explore it in every possible dimension. And I think that's been a great benefit to me. And, and in fact, when I came back to England in 1983, I sort of held on to that as one of the fundamentals for my own studio that you get the techniques right and then you start to explore. And that's been very, very useful, I think, for myself and, and also for my team. Growing up in Northampton, you mentioned that it was a shoe town, it was a leather town. Um, do you feel like that that is in your DNA or was it something that you were very aware of at a young age and you were actively a part of? Could you kind of teach us about that? It's just life. You know, there were so many factories then in Northampton making mainly men's shoes, actually, the classic Goodyear welted men's shoe. Um, and they, they were just there. And, and there was on the markets, people selling bits of leather. Um, there was always machinery dotted around that you could, you know, people were repairing shoes, lots of shoe repair shops. I mean, it was a just, it was just part of the fabric of the town. Um, and obviously, my father, having grown up in Northampton as well, he um, lots of his friends were involved in the shoe trade. Social life with my parents, to a degree, involved people who were involved in the shoe trade or the leather trade, one way or another. And it just kind of, I think it just gets under your skin without you really thinking about it too hard. But 
as a result of it, I mean, my mother used to sort of bring bags of leather scrap back from Northampton Market for um, my sister and my brother and I just to mess around with. So you start to feel it, you start to use it. Um, and I think that just, again, just starts to, it starts the process of evolution, of understanding. Um, and then you meet someone like Gay Wilson, and that's when you get stuck into serious training. I mean, with Gay Wilson in, in Adelaide, I was making bespoke jockey boots, um, hand-stitched wallets from kangaroo skin, uh, kangaroo skin belts, all hand-stitched. You certainly understood the material by the end of that. Does any of uh, the experiences that ha you had, or I guess I should rephrase that question, do any of the experiences that um, you had as a child with leather, your mom bringing home scraps, um, you being uh, around the shoe factories or introduced to them through your father, like, do any of those experiences stick out to you as unique that it was like, I look back at that and say, aha, that was kind of the moment for me, which I, I started to really love leather. Uh, I grew up with my grandfather as well. My father and my um, grandfather both had workshops of their own. And uh, so they were always making something. I don't think leather was a particular standout as a young child. But definitely, as I started to travel, it became something that was extremely useful because it's a very portable skill. And um, as I was traveling through New Zealand and Australia, um, I was able to uh, literally pick up the, the uh, they call the yellow pages, but it's the kind of, you know, the, the, the local town's um, telephone book. And I would go through those books in each town that I arrived in and find the local cobbler or saddler or shoe repair guy and go and see if they wanted any work. So I just kind of started to get into leather work. And then that's when, but again, I think the real standout for me was when I got to Adelaide and when I started to work with Gay Wilson. That was the, um, that was really the moment when I thought, okay, this is it. This is a material that I'm going to really love and explore. So when we look at the Bill Amberg Studio uh, list of clients, it's it's almost out of this world, right? Like it's really unbelievable. Um, but I know you didn't start there. Like I know in 1983 when you returned, like <laughs> the first the first group you did work for was not Westminster Abbey. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no. Because so, I when I when I left um, when I left Australia, I'd been doing. Um, I've been making these things, these boots and belts and things for Gay, but I also, um, she had really encouraged me to do my own thing. And I've been doing some kind of sculpted jewelry, hand-painted jewelry that was kind of, I guess, pretty strange. Um, but when I got back to the UK, I, I, I realized immediately that there was no way that I could um, earn a living from making sculpted leather jewelry. So um, I just turned my hand to doing designing bags. Very early on, I started selling bags to Paul Smith, um, to Joseph, to Liberties of London. And they were all very early clients. And, and they stayed with me for some time, you know, quite right up through for the first kind of 10 years of my business. I was making their bags and accessories. Was it just you at that time, Bill? Was it just you in the workshop or were there others with you? Yeah, it started from 1984 to about 19, 
probably about 87. It was just me. Um, and I got great help from my, my parents and my brother who was training to be a doctor, but he would come in and help cut and stack and stuff. And my sister came and helped. And eventually my sister joined me and she worked with me for seven years actually, but she, she did all the paperwork and the, and the logistical stuff. And I just concentrated on designing and making. And then, and then some people came in to help me. It just slowly evolved. But I did start, um, you know, leather architectural work pretty early on as well. I mean, I think I did my first leather floor in 1986. I made a table for a designer who's now very famous, Ron Harrod. Um, I did a table for him in, 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 that, in 1986 as well. So it's, it's been quite... Uh, and then I guess it, that... The architectural side just sort of very slowly grew in conjunction with what I was doing on the bag side. So I think 86 was two projects, 87 was probably four, and so on and so forth. So going back to the bags really quick, um, for those that don't know, you actually um, designed a bag called the Rocket Bag, which That's is... That's right. It's on display at the um, New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, correct? That's right. Yeah, it is. It, it was about to be featured quite heavily in a new uh, exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London that was meant to open on April the 22nd. But I think as a result of this uh, current virus situation, that's all been postponed until September. Talk about that bag really quick. Uh, you know, I think when, when anybody's going to search or Google Bill Amberg, that's going to be one of the first things that they see. Um, Talk about the moment in time in which that was created and, you know, what, what it meant to you. I'd been uh, making briefcases four or five years, um, and I'd always been interested in taking traditional techniques of leatherworking and then reinterpreting them for the modern age. I wasn't particularly interested in making nostalgic pieces that looked like the kind of stuff that my father carried around. So I started to um, look at de devising a completely new doctor's bag. Do you know what I mean by a doctor's bag? I don't know if you have them in the States. They're like, um, they have a frame top um, and they open up with a wide mouth. All the doctors used to use them for, for many, many years. Yeah, for their house um, calls, right? That's right, for their house calls, exactly. And And I really like that idea of a, of a kind of carry-all bag that has a big open mouth so you get good access to it. And so I wanted to design a new version of that, coupled with the fact that I was starting out my fascination with old English motorbikes. Ah. <laughs> so, so I was spending a lot of time with, um, you know, aluminium castings and uh, getting things made and developing castings for things. And it just kind of married those two things together um, so I remember making the first sketches for that bag and then I made the handle the, the handle of that bag is cast aluminium in two parts and the body of the bag is vegetable tan shoulders with a suede lining I still make that same bag I still make the rocket bag uh, you know it's still on my website it's a really beautiful thing I think but I, I made the first handles out of balsa wood, cast them out, uh, carved them out of balsa wood, 
and then cast them in in uh, brass and they became the masters which i still have and then we then cast them in aluminium and, and we're still making the same way now 35 years later 35 years later yeah it's crazy <laughs> do you do you have one of the original bags still that you use every day i still have an i still have a rocket bag that i use regularly yeah yeah it's not one of the original ones i think that just through the over the course of time it got uh, dissipated probably sold frankly <laughs> at the beginning i think i was quite happy to take an order from anybody for anything so it would have been probably sold well i after this phone call i'm gonna jump on first dibs and find it on there and sell it back to you <laughs> <laughs> yeah there are a few out there there are a few out there so that was one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about um, was your love for motorcycles. Um, and has that influenced the relationship with leather? Because leather and motorcycles have a very, you know, symbiotic relationship, I think. Traveling for so long, um, you know, just hitchhiking around and, and moving between towns and stuff and doing so many odd jobs, I became quite obsessive about the practicality of um, of objects, particularly the bags that you carry. And I think that if you look at the designs that I've done, and I think this was influenced in my bags and in my architectural work, in my furniture, I like a very elegant simplicity with a strong functional bias. I like something that works really well. I think something that's good for purpose is really important. And I think all my bags have that. They don't have the frills. They have, they're elegant, they're strong, they're built to last forever. Mm. Um, you know, that is really, really important. I mean, I'm not interested in something that, you know, you throw away in a couple of years. I want to have something, I want to be making things that people find in grandpa's attic and go, hey, grandpa, look what I found in your attic. And they pull mm. down a bag that's still a wonderful thing that can be used, you know. Do you believe that that's the true definition of sustainability? Totally. I think it's so important. I think this, you know, the, the conversation about the circular economy is really just evolving now. And, I, and obviously, you know, well, you know and I know that the sustainable aspect of leather is really important. You know, it's a, it's a byproduct of the food industry. But the other thing that's really important about it is that it lasts so long. It's fully repairable. And in fact, the, the products that we make, all the bags that I make, are made to be repaired. I don't make some complicated device to put a fitting away so that you can never reach it again. You know, everything that I make can be repaired. And that's really important because that's what gives you longevity. That's, that's what gives you a sustainable product. And the fact that it, is repairable and it lasts forever. I mean, the material, let's face it, will last, you know, for decades if you treat it nicely. So it's 1986, 87, you started to make this rocket bag. And at the same time, you're starting to do some architectural projects. And if you don't mind, and I know it's a probably a little bit awkward for you, but would you tell us some of the amazing places that you've done some leather architecture work? Um, yeah, we've done some really, really beautiful work, I think. Um, 
I've had some, you know, like all of these things, I think you get, you have people who are champions of your work. And I think that's really important. You know, those people that are inspirational for me. Um, and I've had a few of those. So some designers and architects and indeed some, some property developers who I've been working with over a long period have been great champions of my work. In America, Champalimo, uh, Alexandra Champalimo, I've probably been working with her for 25 years now. Um, and we've done some really fantastic work. We, in Aspen, um, we've done some lovely jobs for her in Aspen um, where we've done leather floors, we've done leather wall paneling, and it's quite, it's wonderful. It's really beautiful, beautiful work, and they're still there. It still looks fantastic. Um, and then uh, we've been working more recently with some of the designers from from LA now as well. We've done a lovely job in in um, in Nashville for Adam Hunter, lining an entire room in calf leather, which is I'm really proud of. And then closer to home, uh, most recently we've done. Uh, the all the seating in the Royal Academy Lecture Theatre, which is the Royal Academy of the Arts. Uh, they built a new uh, lecture theatre, and we um, designed and developed the seating for that, which was a tremendous opportunity. Taking elements of saddlery um, in terms of the seaming and the structure of it, but then reinterpreting that for upholstery in scale of a massive lecture theatre. And it looks stunning. Yeah, I will uh, put a link to that uh, in the show notes as well as your website, just so people can get a real sense of uh, the work that you've done. It's it's unbelievable. Um, is there a spot that you're the most proud of that you think, wow, I can't believe that I got to do a project there? We're doing we're designing some furniture for um, a big international law firm, and we've done all the furniture for their uh, main reception lobby area we designed it developed it and are making it and that installs well we take it to site next tuesday fully finished so that's what less than a week's time four days time so that's really exciting and it's a it's a very beautiful very unusual um piece of work and i'm thrilled with it i'll send you some photographs of it daryl it does look lovely awesome um then we're also working on a very big wall paneling project that again one that we designed and developed uh, for a, an enormous building in the center of the city of London it's called 22 Bishops Gate it's the biggest commercial building in Europe and we were asked by the uh, developers there to kind of soften and warm the space uh, it's a very very large building as you can imagine and it has a double height reception area they felt was cold and, mm. and, and, and um, not welcoming enough. And they asked us to come up with a scheme, which we did. So again, we developed a leather specifically for it. And we've done walls and ceiling on two floors of this amazing space with a, with a kind of quite clever kind of ribbon, twisted ribbon of leather that runs across the ceiling. Um, you know, when the site opens up again after this virus is gone, we'll be able to get back on site and finish up that one, which will be quite exciting. 
when you say we and you talk about the studio and making the furniture, um, I just want people to understand that it's not just you anymore, right? It is a, a collective of people that you lead every day. Could you talk a little bit about the studio and like what that's like right now? Yeah, it's, it's really developed um, over time. You know, like any, like any kind of businesses, we've gone in waves of, of, um, of movement. And um, I think now we've got a, an amazing team that the whole sort of evolution of the, both the business and the people have got us to a really interesting place where we have a team of craftsmen from all different aspects of leatherwork, i.e. from bookbinding, saddlery, case making. Um, they're all involved and they all bring their own particular skills to the, um, to the studio. And then everybody cross trains. We have a big cross training program. Um, we also have an apprentice scheme. So we really build on these techniques and we also build on the ideas that people have. Um, I have designers, I employ designers because we're working so much with um, architects and interior designers. You need to be able to speak to them in exactly the same way that they speak to each other so consequently i employ a fully qualified architect um, and a fully qualified furniture designer and they work um, with me in the design team and that's that i think is also really crucial and then we have estimating production marketing finance um, the usual kind of team that sits in the background that keep the wheels turning mm. Um, but everybody's involved. I mean, the creative process is central to the business. I was very influenced by a lot of my bag business was sold in Japan. And, uh, and so I used to visit Japan a lot. And I was very influenced by their, both their aesthetic, but also by their the sort of culture of making and their their dedication and appreciation to craft. And that's very real in Japan. And one of the kind of great drivers for that is a, a guy called Soro Yanagi. And he, uh, his father wrote a very interesting book called The Unknown Craftsman. Um, he has a very, very interesting um, product design studio in, in Tokyo. But most importantly, I think with them is that he felt it most important to get things from the design stage onto the bench into 3D as quickly as possible. Architects do the same thing. Uh, Frey Otto's very influenced by the same thing. He was always trying to get things into 3D as quickly as possible, making models of everything. And you know, we still see it now. There's a, some very interesting furniture designers in the UK who still model everything in 3d um, and that's the same with us you know the workshop and their skills is directly linked to the design process we have these experimental days um, which is in fact how print came out this whole concept of, of the printed on leather came came about through these conversations but that's where i invite both the workshop team and the the office team design and, and background office to come up with an idea. Uh, and, and then we, we 
everybody works on that idea for a day. And these experimental days happen kind of periodically every kind of six weeks to two months. So do the craftsmen or artists that come to your studio, are they fully trained already? Are they pros at what they do? Or is this almost an apprentice type of situation for them? Well, we, we have a formal apprenticeship. There's a three-year program of learning all of the different skills are required to work with us. And then in the workshop, we have um, three other craftsmen who come from different skill bases. Um, but we do have a pros- we do have a structure of a, um, a junior leather worker and a senior leather worker. You build your skills across other techniques, but you also learn how to manage and run jobs, and you have to have achieved two, two jobs completely independently before you can be considered senior craftsman. Having said that, it's, a, it's still an extremely friendly and happy and interesting place to work. <laughs> Was that influenced by Gay Wilson in your time there? Um, and what, you know, what did you take from that experience that is part of the Bill Amberg studio today? And would you say that she was a mentor for you? She absolutely was a mentor. Yeah. She, she, she had a real influence on me. She, like I said, she just had, she was very strict, very strict on technique. And, you know, various people would come and do talks at this. I worked at a place called the jam factory, which is a big kind of arts and crafts center in Adelaide. Mm. There were ceramicists, glass workers, weavers, basket makers, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I was always in and out of their studios. I was always going to see about somebody slumping glass or somebody turning wood or somebody, you know, jeweler making fine things in, in metals. You know, it throws up lots of different stuff and it, 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 you start mixing materials together. You don't, feel, you don't feel there's a problem with mixing up materials and that becomes really important. That influences your thinking, I think. Gives you confidence, gives you great confidence. That's great, man. I think it's just really cool to see that you've carried on her legacy. Is she still alive? You know what? She died at the very end of 2018. And then at the beginning of 2019, I was contacted by her sister. And her sister had found a whole lot of letters that I'd written to her from England after I got back and set up my own studio. And her little leather gifts and things things that I'd made. I never heard from her again, weirdly, but she'd kept all of this stuff that I'd sent her. Sister was going through her belongings. She found all these letters from me um, and various comments that Gay had noted down. She contacted me and said, would I like to buy Gay's tools, her leather tools? So I bought an enormous box of leather tools um, and a leather library, a library of leather crafts books, I'm from Gay. So now I'm using hand tools that I learned with 1981 and 1980, 1981. It's very strange. Amazing. They're back in my hands. It's very strange. That is such an amazing story, man. And she also, um, the sister also sent with um, with the box a whole bunch of stuff that Gay had made. Um leather and willow, wood willow baskets that she'd made, mixing the two materials together, some big leather bowls that she'd made. I mean, all this kind of strange stuff, that very cool stuff that was like, yeah, okay, I get, I get it. And, and, and you're saying 
Was she a mentor? I mean, absolutely. The project that we are focused on with you guys uh, at the Bill Amberg Studio has really been the the printed leather. But I, I feel like it's a disservice to call it printed leather. I feel like that there's it's way bigger than that because you know people have been printing on leather for several years now. What really sets the way that we're doing it together apart from you know the way that it's previously been done or even other people are doing it now? Well, I think uh, that the primary thing, that the the big difference, I think, is that nobody had thought about the substrate. Nobody had really thought about it in terms of it being a completely new material. People had just been taking a digital print um, design and sticking it on any leather that they could find, thinking that their job was done. And what you ended up with is a material that is very plasticated on the surface. And I think it was the dawning when we suddenly thought, hang on a minute, why don't we just develop the lever purely to accept digital dye? And that was the kind of breakthrough. And that took a long time. That took two years um, with a tannery, working through all the different variations and the different... Um, nuances of a tannage to try and get it to accept the digital dye really well. And and as you know, color is made up across a CMYK range. Mm -hmm. Um, And and those are the base colors of every color. All of those uh, inks across that uh, range are all slightly different. So what we had to do was to work with each individual ink color and get it to marry properly to the leather, to bond properly to the leather. And then once you've got that color done, you could move on to the next color and so on until you've done the whole, you know, cayenne, magenta, yellow range, you know, you've done the whole thing. Yeah. And that's when it got quite interesting. And we did that in the, in January, 2018. By then I'd already spoken to some friends about um, it and I've been asking their advice about whether they thought I was barking up the wrong tree or whether they think there was something valid in it. And in fact, Alexander Champalamo from Champalamo Associates in New York was one of those people who I asked. As soon as I got the technical ability nailed in that January of 18, I contacted everybody Tom Dixon, Faye Toogood, Alexander Champalamo, Timorous Beasties, some amazing designers from around the world, and said, Okay, I'm good to go. Bring me your designs and I'm going to do something amazing in September. And we launched it in September with these amazing designers. I then met Sackett from Moran Giles um, at a trade show the following January, and um, we got chatting, and um, we had met before, and, and, and I was obviously familiar with Moran Giles anyway, and I explained what we were doing, and he was very interested, and that started a conversation um, and in fact, started the collaboration. Um, while I was doing that collaboration uh, tie-up, um, we also introduced another five set of designers in September 2019. And then, as you know, by then we had established everything and we started the collaboration formally in January um, of 2020, this year. And it's been, it's been a most amazing journey. And it is beautiful. I mean, I think the thing that sticks out to me is that it still is a beautiful leather and the prints are beautiful. And it doesn't feel like 
the top of a birthday cake. And, you know, when I first saw the leathers from you guys, I thought, wow, like this still looks and feels like leather. Like I can still see the natural characteristics, but I also was so blown away by the creativity um, and being in my world um, in, in design on specifically on the graphic design side, like print has always been part of my background. And so to see the clarity in the print, um, it wasn't pixelated. It didn't look like a bunch of colored sand, if you will. Um, it just, it was amazing. And so I think that the one thing that I, I want to get across to people when we talk about, hey, what's the difference in the Bill Amber collection versus, you know, another form of printed leather? But yes, of course, it's the designs. It's the uniqueness of each of those. But the quality here is at such a level that I don't think you really get to understand it until you see it and touch it and interact with it. And then once you do, you're like, oh, yeah, I would never I would never buy printed leather from anybody else. Well, that's been really important. I mean, I think I've been working with leather for a long time. And I think if you look at my work, the leather that I choose to use predominantly is a naked, aniline, characterful, really beautiful, gorgeous piece of leather. And I can stand by that everything, every single time. And I think it's exactly the same with Moore and Giles. Understanding and love of a natural piece of material. So for me, to develop the print story, it was absolutely crucial that we had a piece of leather that maintained all of the aspects of a truly gorgeous piece of upholstery leather. And that means the grain. It means the character of it. It means the touch. Mm -hmm. It means the durability. It means the wearability, the, the, the workability. How can you work that materials really successfully? And then you get into the beauty of the print and, and the delight of the colors. The fundamentals have to be there. The leather itself has to be gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And I'm so, so pleased and proud with everybody that's been involved because I think that's what we've achieved. I think that's a great point. I think this is not a, a process that you've come up with to make up for bad leather, right? Well, I think that's something that's been done in the past where it's like, ah, this, this hide is less than uh, perfect. And so we'll just print on it to cover up the mistakes. I mean, that's what pigmented leather is at the end of the day. Ooh. This is very that's different. Me. This is taking the very best hide in all of the beam house and saying, now we're going to add creativity on top of that. Um, in a way that brings another artist into the room or into the conversation. And it's absolutely beautiful. You only have to look at leather from around the history. And it's been used as a decorative surface for, for years, for millennia. What we're trying to do now is just take that and make a modern interpretation of it. You know, take the skills and the techniques that are available to us and, and make it work in a, in a modern way. Well, thank you so much for taking time today. I know you're super busy. You've got a lot going on at home and in the garden. So enjoy the weather today and um, be well, Bill. Daryl, very, very nice to talk to you and stay safe. And I look forward to catching up with you face to face, hopefully in the not too distant future.